You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Welcome to another episode of Salmon Farming Inside and Out. I'm Marilyn de Guzman. And I'm Ian Roberts. Nice to be here with you again, Marilyn, and, and a new guest for today. You know, as we as we're introducing this this guest, I've realized that over the last few episodes, it's been really good for us because we've been talking to material experts on certain subjects. Um, I would say you and I are generalists, and and uh, I especially, you know, communicating uh, aquaculture and and sitting as chair on the Canadian Aquaculture Industry Alliance, realize that. You know, a big part of us uh, and our jobs is public education and, and communicating our audience. And, and obviously, we need to bring on material third-party experts that know the subject material inside and out. And uh, it's important for those people to convey information to the public. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in the same way, as a journalist, you know, we too look to experts to help us understand an issue or a topic so that we can report on them more accurately. And not just more accurately, but also based on facts and in a manner that's more comprehensible to the readers, particularly when reporting on research or technical based subjects. But what happens when these experts become the subject of the story? Yeah, you're right. I mean, some some people make the experts the targets, uh, and it becomes uh, more a debate around personalities and characters uh, than it does around the facts and the science. And that really leads us into our episode today, and it's going to be a fascinating conversation. Um, uh, but first, before I introduce the guest, Marilyn, we start with a trivia question. So back yes. to you. Yes, and this time we have a true or false question. At one point in their life cycle, salmon can go without eating for up to six months. Is this true or false? Interesting. Okay. True true and false questions never worked for me with my exams in school. I'm guaranteed to uh, guess the wrong way. Um, so let me introduce today's guest. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Gary Marty. He's a board certified veterinary pathologist with a master's degree in fisheries biology and a PhD in comparative pathology. For the past 19 years, he worked as a diagnostic fish pathologist for the BC, British Columbia Provincial Animal Health Center. And in June 2023, this year, he transitioned to a new role as senior fish pathology consultant, providing fish pathology expertise in communications, teaching, diagnostics, and research. He has appointments as a research associate at the University of California, Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, and as adjunct faculty at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Saskatchewan. Dr. Marty has co-authored 59 peer-reviewed scientific publications. And in 2020, Dr. Marty was recognized as an outstanding reviewer of the Canadian Journal uh, of Fisheries and Aqua Aqu Aquatic Sciences. And when not doing fish pathology, Dr. Marty enjoys disc golf, as do I. That's something I enjoy. And I've started to take up, uh, what is it, pickleball as well. I'm, I'm at that age now where pickleball is becoming popular. So, Dr. Marty, welcome to our uh, show. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be here, Ian. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're, you're very welcome. This is going to be a, a fascinating conversation, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm sure we're all going to learn a lot here. You know, let's start at the basics here. If you don't mind just telling us uh, about your personal experience and, and your career in animal health, which uh, has included fish. Okay, well, I grew up in Iowa in the United States, 
and attended Iowa State University, where I majored in fisheries and wildlife biology. And while I was there, I had an opportunity to work in the veterinary school. And the faculty member asked me, what do you want to do, basically, when you grow up? And, well, I'd like to you know, work in fish, probably get a PhD. And they said, well, you should become a veterinarian. You could be an expert. I thought, wow, I'd like to be one of those. This is after my first year of undergraduate work. And little did I know that it would be 17 more years of university education before I could even finish and start my way towards being an expert. And in the fish world, traditionally, disease work, at least in the United States, was done by people with a PhD in bacteriology or maybe a virologist, and veterinarians weren't involved very much. But that's transitioned over the 40 years of my career to the point now that most of the diagnostic work in North America with hatcheries and aquaculture is done by veterinarians working with people with PhDs. So a veterinarian might find a disease of interest, a new disease, or have a question. They'll work with someone with a PhD to do some research and try to figure out the answer. So, so I got through, went to veterinary school at Iowa State, and then I moved out to the University of California, Davis, where I worked on my PhD and got board certified. And while I was working on that, the Exxon Valdez oil spill occurred. And that was the largest oil spill in the history of North America at the time. I was fortunate to be in a laboratory that was able to attract the contract from the government for all histopathology work done. And so histopathology is the pathologist looks under a microscope for changes in tissues. So I want to see are the effects of the oil spill. And that was a large project, uh, several different works with herring, with pink salmon, with rockfish. And I was able to take the lead on those projects. And that actually kept me going as through a, a, I actually got a research faculty appointment after I finished my PhD. After a few years, that was kind of winding down. I decided it was probably easier to get a job than continue to find grants and contracts to pay my salary. So there was a job opening in BC. In British Columbia, people were really concerned that disease from salmon farms was a threat to wild salmon. And the government at the time put together what's called a salmon aquaculture review in 1997 and said, we need to be more proactive in learning about disease on salmon farms. And so they set up what has become the world's leading program to survey a, an industry. And at this point, after 20 years, we can actually tell you within a reasonable level of confidence what diseases are killing farm salmon, what the prevalence is, and how that prevalence has changed over the last 20 years. And we put all that together and we can actually see that the prevalence is surprisingly low. As I'm learning, I was hired to document that salmon farm diseases were a threat to wild salmon. And what I found out is not, that's not the case. They're like all other populations. They have some diseases, but if you look at all overall, only about 2% of the salmon on a farm over a period of a given year will die of an infectious disease. 8% die of something else usually toxic algae or predators or low dissolved oxygen, and then 90% survive. And you just look at the processing plants, they're, they're sending semi-truck loads of fish out to consumers and they don't have ulcers and they don't have disease. So this is something that's maybe one of the reasons I end up going into private practice is communicating that difference. And it's profound compared to what you might read in most of the major media type things or on social media. So it's been an exciting career, a lot of different things, had opportunities to travel to places like the Yukon, and as well as serve, serve an industry that's really working hard to be the best they can.
when it comes to approaches in animal health, are there more similarities or differences uh, between aquaculture and you know terrestrial agriculture? For veterinarians, it's surprisingly similar. So a population of 10,000 chickens is handled by a veterinarian very similar to a population of 60,000 fish in a pen or five or 600,000 fish on a farm. You don't necessarily treat individuals. You diagnose disease and treat populations. Maybe I'll give an example. Example would be um, one of our veterinarians uh, works for a Greek, Dr. Patrick Whitaker. He actually worked in Alberta as a cattle veterinarian for 12 years and decided to move out to BC and work with Grieg on their aquaculture operations. And within just a few, few months and worked, working with colleagues, he was able to develop a very high level expertise without having to go back and get a PhD or anything like that because he understood the basics of dealing with populations. He had to learn the specifics of fish diseases, but those there's only 10 or so diseases you really need to know. But you need to know things like proper nutrition, um, handling, a proper environment. All those things are very similar regardless of whether you're dealing with population of chickens, beef cattle, or Atlantic salmon. So you introduced this talking about your initial hiring in British Columbia, which was kind of to prove that disease from salmon farms were perhaps a, a major threat to wild salmon. And after, you know, many, many decades in the field, you found that not to be the case. So what role does a veterinarian doctor play in addressing, not just addressing misinformation and disinformation, but communicating uh, the facts? Um, because anybody listening to this podcast is say, you know, this isn't what I've generally heard in the headlines, all these acronyms of ISA and PRV and all these scary sounding viruses that, that are supposed to be killing off our wild salmon. Um, so, so what, role do vets have to play in ensuring accurate information is out there in the public discourse and what has gone wrong over the 20 years where we seem to be hearing from others that perhaps aren't professionals in the field? Well, one of the important parts that every veterinarian needs to do who's a practicing veterinarian is to obtain a license. And part of obtaining a license is being aware of the ethical responsibilities of a medical professional which are very similar across all the medical professions, whether it's human medicine or animal medicine. And one of the key points, certainly in the College of Veterinarians of BC, is you know, members have an ethical responsibility to educate the public about matters of animal health. And certainly in my 19 years as a government veterinarian, I, I took that responsibility very seriously. And so the other challenge is, governments differ on how much they want their employees to be communicating in the public uh, sort of independently. You know, veterinarians expect to be able to communicate their knowledge independent of political influence. And that, that varied during my career. But also individual veterinarians are, are people. And some people are more inclined to speak publicly than others. So like any other specialty, you know, I'm a pathologist. My specialty is pathology. So veterinarians will refer their cases to me for pathology. Likewise, I encourage our local BC veterinarians to refer communication questions to me for communication. It's something I enjoy. When you get into communications in a controversial field, and that's usually where communications is most important, there's going to be negative feedback from people that disagree. And so not all veterinarians 
are equipped or want to deal with the negative feedback. Whereas with my 18 years of education and in both areas of science and medicine, I feel reasonably comfortable that I, I need to stand up. The other thing is a duty to people, a duty to our clients, and just in general, the public. And I look at some of the social media that's come out, say from the First Nations that support salmon farming. And I, I maybe give the example of a lot of what I do is for Ruth Robinson. And Ian, you probably know Ruth or have seen her. I, um, I know her very well. And I, I've never met her myself, but I feel like I know her a little bit from some of the social media. But here's a person in Klemtu who's lived her entire life in this place. I think she said she was 76 years old. And my understanding is the interaction with Moe has gone very well. And people are able in the Native community are able to have year-long jobs. And their kids can look forward to something when they grow up. And yet the government is threatening to shut them down for reasons that I know are not going to bring back wild salmon. That's one of the reasons I appreciate the invitation to be here, just to help communicate those issues. And I was disappointed that's only been that Ruth Robinson's video has only been viewed 600 times. So I would encourage any listener to do a Google search or YouTube search for Ruth Robinson, Clem Tu, and Moe, and look at it's, it. Came out about 10 months ago. It, it gives a different impression than what you get from some of the other social media. And so I want to be able to communicate the fact that yes, there is disease but it's a minimal threat. If it's if only 2% of the fish who are confined in the salmon farms get a die of an infectious disease, then we can be pretty confident that it's gonna be much less than that on say the Fraser River sockeye that go by our salmon farms, maybe a total of two hours in their lifetime. Looking at the media headlines dealing with imaginary threats of diseases, uh, it has become you know, a significant part of your workload. You know, It's a mission that you're taking on as well. How, how do you deal with that? Well, one of the differences we need to understand is the difference between science and medicine. Imagination, we might, a, a scientist would use the term hypothesis. Imagination is a very important part of science. A scientist comes up with an idea. I think this might be a cause. I think this might be going on. And then they design an experiment to demonstrate whether their hypothesis or their imagination is correct. The challenge we get is when that imagination starts to drive public policy, especially in the area of fish diseases or fish health. You know, I'll contrast that imagination to say an accredited diagnostic laboratory. Their protocols and being accurate and reliable are most important. You know, when I worked in an accredited diagnostic laboratory that was the Animal Health Center, you know, we had to follow protocols. We don't follow the protocols, we don't send out test results. And so our, our decisions and of course, when I give information to our clients, they're making decisions based on evidence. They're not basing their decision on imagination. And the frustrating part for me is that the imagination is getting more press than the evidence. Imagination can go much faster than evidence. And I can give examples if you're interested, but maybe I'll just stop there and see if there's follow-up questions. Well, yeah, actually there is, and it's right on this. Um... That's a fantastic quote you just gave me. Imagination is getting more press than evidence. And uh, you and I actually participated in a program back in 2017. It was uh, the W5 program uh, from CTV. And, uh, you know, you personally in this program, I should just say too, I think the program was about 24 minutes long. And if I put you and I together who spoke 
on behalf of the salmon farming sector, I think we got about three minutes of the 24 minutes. So you speak about balance and the, you know, the, the, the mismatch of, of imagination and evidence. Uh, we got three minutes out of 24. But in that program, you actually, you know, you endured some personal attacks from uh, what I would class as anti-salmon farming individuals, uh, groups, and, and also government officials. Um, what happened there was activists had pushed CTV and the W5 program to question your personal integrity. Um, and the then premier of British Columbia called for an investigation into your lab in Abbotsford. I imagine that was a very difficult time for you. Can you tell me a bit more about this event? I think our listeners and many in the salmon farming sector that have been here for at least a few years would, would be aware of that program. So. Uh, can you tell us about that event and the result of the investigation and just, you know, what that meant to you personally? To not go into too much detail, I was, I was accused of having a conflict of interest, and this was related to my role as a diagnostic pathologist serving all of the clients that submitted cases for submission. So most of my career, I've been the only diagnostic pathologist, and part of my job profile was to serve both a government um, auditing and surveillance program, and direct submissions from industry. So I basically accepted all the cases that were assigned to me by my supervisor. And I should clarify that I worked at the BC Animal Health Center. It's an organization that has about 35 employees. I would, my role was strictly a diagnostic pathologist. I did not supervise anybody. I've never been the director of a lab. So when I say my lab, it's the lab that I worked at, but it wasn't the lab that I controlled. So in this duty, you know, there, there was the accusation that there could have been a conflict of interest. Now, from a medical perspective, actually, uh, I'm required to, as a BC Public Service employee, I'm required to be impartial. So in my mind, I need to accept and provide medical services, my diagnostic services to anybody who needs them, regardless of who pays. It would be like a physician asking if you were an NDP or liberal supporter and refusing to treat you because you're one or the other. That would be considered unethical by a medical professional. So from my standpoint, I'm being ethical, but this, this conflict of interest, it was surprising to me how strong the reaction was. You know, I'd, I'd been in this business of communications for several years at that point, so it, it didn't mean that much to me, but the reaction was almost like a principal at a school being accused of pedophilia or child pornography or something like that. So immediately, you know, my, my role in this government audit program, which is the reason I was hired in the first place, was terminated, you know, regardless of, you know, whether it was going to be a inquiry or not. Now, there's also the challenge as a BC public employee, if I was to be investigated on something like conflict of interest, which, for which I could be terminated, all that would be confidential. So no one would know the results other than maybe I would no longer work for the BC government. So that didn't work very well. The liberal government took the NDP government who had just attained power at the time to task for some of the things that had been said by the minister. In fact, one day, I think Wednesday of that particular week, Dr. Gary Marty was the subject of question period for the entire day, which yeah. is probably unprecedented for a public service employee that has no, doesn't supervise anyone. I was just a, 
small cog among 30,000 employees. So it was a fascinating thing. It was picked up by several of the local media outlets. And finally, the premier had to decide to set up a review of the animal health center. So they paid Deloitte $104,000 to conduct a very thorough external review. And several months later, they came out and said, no evidence of technical or financial conflict of interest, which is what we expected all along. And so still I was restricted from doing those cases for basically the remainder of my career. And only at the end, when eventually we got down to me, all our other fish pathologists resigned for or quit for one reason or the other. It was just me in the last few months I was actually doing both of those. But even then we had to get a special thing to overcome our protocols. And it was, that was very frustrating. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, here's another example. And we've talked about this in, in previous podcasts about the critical voice just getting far too much weight in the conversation and in the balance of the conversation. As you say, that goes to national TV and goes to question period in the legislature about a single employee that's being criticized by anti-salmon farming activists and government officials. It's uh, absolutely amazing. And just as a follow-up to let you know, CTV, uh, in my opinion, hadn't uh, finished that story because they were quite proud that they say that they spurred the investigation into the lab because of their story and and, uh, with the BC government. Um, But they never did conclude in that story that you had been uh, given uh, a gold star, I think was the words used by, by the premier at the time. Uh, in in your work. Um, So uh, I, for the last five years, have asked the producers of CTV to update their story with that bookend. And it took them uh, just about six months ago, they finally bookended that story and that video online. So for five years, they wouldn't finish the story, um, which we finally got finished six months ago. Just unbelievable treatment from uh, that particular bit of media nationally. But I digress. Marilyn, you, you have a question. Yeah, so in another note, the Canadian Science Advisory Secretariat coordinates the scientific peer review and science advice for Fisheries and Oceans Canada. After reviewing all available science of salmon farming in BC, it concluded that salmon farming poses no more than a minimal risk to migrating Fraser River sockeye salmon. In your professional opinion, do you agree with the uh, CSAS conclusion? Yes, I participated in about half of those nine CSAS processes and and everyone disagrees with small parts of this or that but generally the conclusion is very consistent with my findings which you know I pretty much spent 100% of my career the last two decades looking at disease on salmon farms and sometimes in wild salmon and the evidence strongly supports the conclusion there's certainly imagination people with imaginations that come up with other conclusions but the evidence strongly supports that it is minimal risk to wild sockeye salmon. And, and you had mentioned before that, that that is not just, well, that is your opinion based on your experience uh, for many decades in the field, but there are other uh, professionals in your seat, both in America, south of the border, uh, probably to the north of the border as well. But there's many uh, veterinarians that would share or fish pathologists that would share that opinion. Is that correct? Yeah, well, Part of my, one of the things I didn't mention in our, my, my bio is that I'm currently the past president of the fish health section of the American fish, Fishery Society. This is an organization of about 250 fish health professionals. 
includes both veterinarians and other scientists with PhD, master's degree who spend the bulk of their career dealing with fish health issues. There's another organization, the American Association of Fish Veterinarians. That organization has about 300 members and there are a few people that would be members of both, but not too many. So there's probably about 500 fish health professionals, mostly in North America. And in my four year kind of series through the presidential series of the fish health section, I never had anybody come up to me and say that they thought that salmon farms in British Columbia were a threat to wild salmon. And that's what I call the silent majority. It's surprising how few times these professionals are consulted to, for their opinion on certain matters. And, and two of those members actually came out with the perspectives in the Journal of Aquatic Animal Health last year. And they were quite critical of some of the imaginary uh, things that were going on and had some recommendations. And, and particularly with the idea of Piscine rheovirus, there's been a lot of the press on that lately. They came out and said, with, with support of many of their members that were advising them that PRV was considered a low risk, not zero, but did not require any management changes. And so and I've talked to those authors personally as well. And they do not feel that salmon farms in BC represent a threat to their salmon, that mostly they're you can, working with hatcheries. And so their salmon are mixing with our wild salmon as well as going by our salmon farms in some cases. And they, they aren't worried about the diseases from those salmon farms affecting their stocks. So that there are groups, and just on that that thread, there are groups like the Pacific Salmon Foundation that they seem to be very careful with their language. I mean, they acknowledge that there's a risk from salmon farming, like there's a risk for me driving my car and any other human activity that we do, and farming included. But they they acknowledge the risk. But again, similar to you, they're not stating that there's any impact and population impact on wild salmon, but they have a fairly large voice uh, in, in the debate. Um, now, that group is actually asking for the closure of BC salmon farms, despite not showing any impact, only acknowledging the risk. But why do you think, and PSF is just one of those examples, why do you think there is, is such a polarization in the discussion around BC salmon farming and specifically fish health and risk to wild salmon. How have we reached this kind of polarizing debate, which for 95% of the population is just confusing because they don't know much about the issue. They, they can only read the headlines. Well, there's probably two fundamental things going on here. First, in general, in say British Columbia, wild salmon populations are trending downward. Second, people really like wild salmon. They're probably one of the iconic species. The, the colorful Fraser River sockeye going back to spawn, jumping up the streams, spawning huge numbers in the Adams River, being you know eaten by a bear. You know that be your classic British Columbia picture is a bear eating a Fraser River sockeye salmon. And so they're they're given a easy answer: disease from salmon farms. Most people have never been on a salmon farm. They don't know a salmon farmer. Salmon farmers live out in remote communities where you know nobody sees them. They see social media. You know, I can go on YouTube and I'll see things from Wild First that salmon farms are bad. Fear generates an immediate response. Knowledge can overcome fear, but that's fear is minutes and seconds. Knowledge is years and decades. 
And so it takes a long time. And you and I probably first met dealing with the sea lice issue. You know, an article in 2007 said sea lice from salmon farms are gonna cause pink salmon to go extinct. Local extinction is certain. Well, the study didn't have any data from the salmon farms. And I was able to work with veterinarian, Dr. Sonia Sexita, and we were able to get all the data from the salmon farms and show that no, there's actually no significant population effect, at least no negative effect. We actually did find a slight positive effect, which was a little bit unexpected. And, and the analysis was done by a professor from the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. And Alaska doesn't allow salmon farming other than some short-term net pans as their hatcheries are releasing. So it was a strong, strong paper. And so this, this come with example, and that actually did get quite a bit of press. And so there, there are opportunities, but it, it takes a long time for knowledge to overcome fear. What is the biggest lesson you've learned throughout your long career as a fish pathologist? I think the biggest surprise when I came to BC was that scientists are not always interested in the best knowledge. And I, I give this example from the science paper. You know, this local extinction was published in science, which was one of the world's top rated journals, but it had no, almost no data. It had no data from salmon farms. I got the data from salmon farms for a decade and we took our paper, submitted to science. They did not even review it. They refused to review the paper. Uh, fortunately, we were able to publish it in another paper, but that's, that's been, I guess, one of my frustrations is that, so in that case, I, I didn't feel like they were interested in the science. They were more interested in the local extinction thing. And it turns out, of course, local extinction did not occur. You know, I should note one of the rivers in the study area that they said local extinction was certain actually had its highest run ever in since records were since 1950, highest run ever in 2014, which was more than 25 years after salmon farms had been in the area. So if you look at actual data, salmon's populations, they're wildly go up and down, but that has continued. It happened before salmon farms were there. It continues to happen after salmon farms have arrived. This discussion really uh, brings back some memories on you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic when scientists were saying they felt like their voices were being curtailed because it doesn't necessarily match the public messaging. Do you think scientists, especially the, the ones that are working in the fields, should be given more voice in the public discourse? Well, I'll stick to my area of expertise, which is fish diseases and pathology. So when an article or say a scientific paper comes out and there's a press release, and if it's coming from scientists that are not medical professionals, I'd like to see an opportunity for a medical professional to provide a perspective on the article and not just the salmon farmers. You know, salmon farmers are good at farming salmon, but they aren't necessarily good, the best person to ask about interpretation of a scientific paper. And I hope you know, I can be available to offer that. Scientists can be very varied on their perspectives. And of course, maybe one thing I described is a little bit the different, more of the difference between science and and medicine, uh, scientists are driven to discover new things. Whereas medicine, you're, it's more important to be correct and sort of diagnostic libraries provide reliable advice. So scientists, in order to discover new things, have to get funding for their research 
And so they'll often put things, their results in perspective. Well, I see this, we isolated this virus or we found this new bacteria. You should send me more money so I can research it. And there's both good and bad, but you know, we do want more information, but sometimes you can go, I guess, down a rabbit hole and you're not really providing useful information for say the medical practitioner. You might just be working to keep your lab afloat. And of course, I, I was a researcher, 100% funded by my salary, by my contracts and grants for seven years at the University of California, Davis. So I understand how both sides work. Yeah, that, that leads into, we're coming up to the end here. And my last question um, that I have, and I must say, I don't know how many times, uh, Dr. Marty, I had uh, received a call from a journalist. It was basically a, a mathematician that had written a study about fish health. And they're asking me for my opinion, uh, of which fish health and maths were not my strongest suits in, in high school. Um, and I would just say, listen, it doesn't really matter what my opinion is. You need to talk to a professional in fish health. This paper is about, you know, fish pathology uh, written by a mathematician. Um, and I could just tell they weren't going to pick up the phone and call you or other individuals or professionals. I just knew that wasn't going to happen. They wanted my, my opinion and, uh, and that was their story. Um, always disappointing. So it kind of leads to my, my, my last question before we wrap up here, but how do we, and, and I say we, the salmon farming sector, um, do a better job of communicating accurately about fish health? Is it, uh, is it me giving them your phone number directly? Well, that's probably part of it. The one thing I really have appreciated about working with salmon farmers over the last two decades is they are quite open to having their confidential medical records used for scientific purposes, but they do want them used by experts who understand the data and how it's interpreted and allow for input from the veterinarians that work with the animals all the time. And that's you know, one reason I think I was accused of conflict of interest is it was from a non-medical professional that didn't understand the importance of me as a specialist talking with the generalist, the person who's with the fish all the time. So basically I'm at my computer, I'm at my desk, I don't go out to the farms. It's actually a biosecurity risk to have me going out to lots of different farms. And so having that relationship, and certainly I'm, I'm available, you know, and I, I do have a policy, and I think I will continue this of accepting all interviews, regardless of whether I have an idea that this might be what I'll call a predatory interview. They don't really want the information. They're just trying to do a gotcha. Because even, even some of those previous things, I actually use those in teaching when I go down to the University of California, Davis, twice a year now and teach their final year veterinary students in a, one of their clinical rotations, an elective and and they can learn about some of these communication issues. And it's, it's very important for veterinarians to understand. It's not always something that they learn in veterinary school. Now they're, they're being taught some things with social media, but it's always nice to see the examples and know, know what takes. So it's a matter of just answering the questions, you know, provide information. I'm actually doing some work with the salmon farmers now to help with communications and the back and forth. What's most, what, what's most effective? What are, what are people going to be able to access? And I, I realize that as an expert, very likely my first inclination is way too complex. So you have to run it by some people who, some regular people, can you, can you access this? Does this make sense? Do you ask them, you know, repeat back to me what you just heard or what you just read. And hopefully we, we can move forward. And again, it's, you're in this for, you know, sustainable, you're in this from the decade for career type level. You're not going to be able to answer every question 
right away. But if you stick with it and, and the fundamentals are there, you know, the fundamentals we have from this world leading program tell us really it is minimal risk from salmon farming. And, and getting back to COVID, think about when we were in COVID, there might be a, a care home or something, a senior care home that was under quarantine for COVID. Yet if we were out for a walk, we wouldn't worry about walking by that care home because we know that the risk of us getting it walking by was, was minimal. Same thing with a salmon farm. There might be a disease in the salmon farm, but for the wild sockeye salmon going by it, where they're only near a salmon farm for a couple hours at a time, really the risk for them is extremely low. And so keeping all those things in mind, we have the data behind us, just work on the communication. And most people are willing to listen to both sides of the story. You know, they, they, they hear the fear and they'll maybe just stop buying salmon for a little while, but people like salmon. And so they like the wild salmon and they like the farm salmon to eat them. The, the markets are very good. And I, I participate in purchasing both kinds of salmon and try to be focused. You know, my, my goal is healthy salmon and reliable diagnostic data. Lovely. And, and thank you. Uh, you use the word accessible. I think you've made this uh, podcast episode very accessible for people too. It's, it's very understandable for those people that aren't in the field of fish pathology, me included. So, so thank you for that. And speaking of accessibility, is there a way that people can reach you a best way in your role now as senior fish pathology consultant? And, and I do wonder too, if some of the studies that you refer to that you have authored or co-authored, are they available? Do you have a library or a bibliography somewhere where people can read on a, on a website or where may they find that? Well, certainly you can look up a Gary Marty salmon. You'll probably see most things. I think for our podcast, you know, I'm welcome to put my, my business email there. If someone wants to contact me, you know, that's the best thing. I've, right now, I don't have a website. I, I just started my business a month ago and I, I already have too much to do. So I'm not necessarily looking for a huge projects for, for little things, helping people understand things. Um, just like I met a University of Alberta professor who's a leader in his field, but doesn't have a lot of experience with fish pathology. So I, they're doing a publication. They said, well, send me out some slides. I'll, I'll take some pictures for you. So your, your publication will be a little bit better. So little things like that often I have time for those make, make for just an interesting career and that the communications part, I'm probably not going to be paying many bills doing that, but but it's also interesting and helps in the long run for sustainable business and also for sustainable wild salmon, I hope. Yeah, appreciate that. We'll be sure to put some uh, contact details in the byline uh, on the website under this podcast so uh, people can see where to get a hold of you. So, uh, Marilyn, should we revisit the uh, trivia question as we wrap up here? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for uh, sharing your insights today, Dr. Gary. But before we let you go, um, if you would like to answer, try to answer this question. At one point in their life cycle, salmon can go without eating for up to six months. True or false? Well, there are Chinook and Chum salmon in the Yukon River system that I know go at least three months. I don't know if they go six months. So I'll say probably true because you wouldn't have asked it otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's correct. Uh, they go, they can go up to six months so three to six months. Uh, once they reach the freshwater during their migration, they prepare their body for spawning and um, yeah, and they don't eat 
So I guarantee you with that true and false question in high school, I would have second guessed myself and got it terribly wrong. So well done you for sorting it out. <laughs> uh, Dr. Marty, really appreciate the discussion. Uh, I, I find it fascinating the way you break it down and I hope our audience uh, does as well. So I'm sure we'll we'll receive many follow-up questions about this and, uh, and we'll be in touch. But thanks again for uh, participating in our episode. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I wish you the best. I have enjoyed listening to these podcasts. Make sure a, a great way to spend the time while I'm looking at my microscope slides. Thank you, Wonderful. Dr. Thank Barry. you. You've been listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, brought to you by Aquaculture North America. If you have a comment on today's episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species.